to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Jorge Fascinetti. Welcome. There's something really cool about talking to scientists, particularly when they have intimate knowledge about a disease you deal with every day of your life. It was awesome to learn how the molecules they study can potentially create therapies and drugs that can dramatically improve your life. My conversation about these subjects and the drugs currently under development for acromegaly, Cushing's, and pediatric hyperinsulinism with Dr. Stephen Betts, co-founder of Crenetic Pharmaceuticals, did not disappoint. In this podcast, the fourth in our drug development series, which we call The Journey to a New Drug, I talk with Dr. Betts about these new drugs and how the different molecules they study affect cell receptors. This is great information that will give you a much better understanding on how these diseases affect pituitary function and what it takes to find new therapies. It is safe to say I could have chatted with them all day. Hope you enjoy it. Dr. Steve Betts, who is one of the founders of Crenetics, and I just want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, absolutely, I heard the story from Scott, which was mm-hmm. very funny. What's now lovingly known as the Squeaky Chair podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first podcast that was a famous we did with, Crenetics with podcast. Dr. Yeah. yeah. So I want to hear from you. Your your how. You go. You guys got started, and that that uh, um, th- those times when you were just what five people. Six? Oh sure, yeah. I think um, we, st- you know, the squeaky chair was because when we started, we got all of our material secondhand. So everything that was in an office, a chair or a desk or anything, was all secondhand. Came from somewhere else. Came from somewhere else. We were not above dumpster diving in the early part of the decade. We probably still shouldn't be above it now, um, but we were, you know, very cash conscious. And so, it was actually weird to think about that. The height of the recession was actually a really good time to start a company um, because lab space was really cheap, and a lot of places were cutting back or going out of business. And we had a lot of friends in town. And they would call us up and say, hey, we've got office equipment, we've got consumables for the lab, we've got things that we have to dispose of, and if you come and get rid of them for us, we don't have to pay to have them disposed yeah, of. Yeah, what a great... Yeah, and so you would never think like, oh, hey, I'm going to start this business in the middle of the recession, but it actually ended up working out really good for us at the yeah. time. And I don't think we could have done, we could do today what we did then because things are so much more expensive. Lab space is so much more expensive and there's not the market for used equipment that we used to have. And so uh, we were able to stretch our small amount of dollars much further uh, 10 years ago than I think we could have been able to do today. Well, it's a fascinating story. It's the, the, the quintessential story of small garage companies, you know, with great energy and ideas to move forward. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would never suggest doing medicinal chemistry in, in your garage. No. But we certainly did use our garages for storage while we were uh, getting started. Yeah. Um, and much to the displeasure of our spouses. But we, we started putting everything together um, mostly in 2009, I think was when the company really started to get um, 
rolling. We opened our first lab in January of 2010, and I think it was only about a thousand square feet for the whole for the four of us that started. And um, we had had a number of ideas. I think that's one of the things that we've always had here at Kernetics is probably more ideas that we want to go after than we can get around to doing. Yeah. Um, and so those early days, we had a number of ideas where we were looking at uh, GPCRs, receptors in endocrinology and trying to think of new ways that we could attack them from a drug discovery standpoint. And a lot of it was seeing what worked and what got traction and what didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where a lot of these early programs, including the SST2 agonists for acromegaly and NETS, that's where those those ideas first came from. They so were one the, of the, the earliest SST ones. So SST is an early version of the 808? Yeah, it was yeah. the, it was the, the it, was, it wasn't the first. What does SST stand for? Soma somatostatin. Okay, okay. So, okay, yeah. okay. so, somatos the, so the somatostatin system um, in the body, so somatostatin is a natural hormone that gets made. Its job in the body, all over the body, is to down-regulate other things. Uh, it down-regulates other hormone productions in the pituitary, in the pancreas, it can down-regulate pain uh, signaling in neurons, um, and it does this through a number of uh, related receptors called the somatostatin receptors, which are located in different tissues throughout the body. And so it's known that this one particular somatostatin receptor, which is called SST2, is found in the pituitary, and it suppresses growth hormone secretion, which is the cause of acrobegaly mm -hmm. when you have an adenoma that over-secretes growth hormone. And so SST2, turning on the SST2 receptor turns off growth hormone um, secretion, and so it can be an effective treatment for uh, the disease. And so this was one of the very first uh, projects that we were interested in. Scott had been working in somatostatin when he was an undergraduate and graduate student um, and so it was one of the foundational ideas to explore somatostatin biology and the use of small molecules in somatostatins um, was really one of the founding ideas that, and it, it actually did get some, we had some traction there. So it would be safe to assume that you know somatostatin and receptors, pituitary receptors, like the palm of your hand. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we we've spent a good decade or more. I, Scott Scott really does. I don't tell him this, but he probably knows more about them than anybody. Um, but I, I, I always try not to give him too many compliments. <laughs> but uh, you know, we have built a a large um, community here where we understand the receptor family. We understand how molecules can bind to these receptors and activate them, uh, and we can dictate the pharmacology. So if you wanted to hit SST2 selectively or SST5 selectively, or two and five, but not three and four, we can, uh, in the MedChem group, we can find molecules to do all those things. Um, I think the other thing that was, I think, pioneering for us was that Somatostatin is a peptide, and we don't make peptide drugs. So peptide drugs need to be injected to be delivered. So this delivered. is like lanreotide or... Exactly. So the current ones, lanreotide, pasireotide, or octreotide, are all injectable uh, formulations. Either they're uh, 
once daily injections or multiple times daily injections or um, depots that you would get once a month. And our idea was to make small molecules that you would keep in your medicine cabinet that you just take once a day when you get up in the morning and that's it. You don't need the injections. You don't need to schedule a clinic visit to go get a depot. And really, I think it'll improve patients' lives and it'll also improve, um, there's a lot of variability with injections mm -hmm. in terms of the amount that gets on board each time a depot is given uh, and it changes over the course of the month. This should be a much more regular amount of therapeutic that's delivered daily. And so I think the response for most patients will be much less variable and, and much, the, much the, easier for the, them. The depots are 28 days or somewhere <clears> in there. They <throat> just, mm -hmm. just, just go up and down depending on the, or they have a, a, a decline curve as the as you get to the latter part of it, away from the injection. I, I think that's one of the things we've learned from talking to patients is that you know, these depot injections, at the beginning of the month, you get a lot of coverage, and then for some patients, it might wear off in week three. Some it might wear off right at the end of a month. Some might not need it for a month and a half because everybody's metabolism of these peptides is a little different. bit different. And also, the things that we've learned is that the administration of these depots is actually quite technically challenging. So one month, you might get the perfect injection, and so it covers you all month. And the, ne the next month, maybe the person who's administering the injection doesn't quite do a great job, and they don't get the full dose uh, delivered, and then your, your depot runs out after two to three weeks, and you're left hanging yeah. for the last week until you have to go back and get another injection. And I, that's, been, that's been a real revelation to me about how hard these are to deliver routinely and um, reproducibly month after month yeah, after month. Yeah. Yeah, the continuity. Yeah, I think. So let me ask you, maybe this will be a very simple question, but I think that the, our audience uh, may be interested in, in, in hearing this. So when, when you look, can you actually see a receptor under the microscope? Or is it a, is it tissue? Is it a chemical reaction? What, what does it look like? And what, how do you know that the compound that you're applying to mm -hmm. it is doing what it's supposed to do? So receptor biology is really fascinating, yeah. and um, the the structures of GPCRs, people knew that they so were there. Oh, I'm sorry. So GPCRs, which were all these endocrine receptors yeah. are, are G-protein coupled receptors. So okay. they are a class of receptors that evolved 500 million years ago uh, to transmit signals from one part of a, a organism to another part of an organism. And they have a um, conserved structure that um, goes across the membrane. So these structures are all very similar, but all very slightly different because they all have very different jobs. Mm -hmm. And what they do is their job is to translate a signal from outside the cell to inside the cell. So they have a really important gatekeeping um, job in every cell in your body, practically. Yeah. And so, um, as biology was developing in the 20th century, these receptors were discovered and they were characterized, but nobody had been able to see them. In the late 1990s and the early 2000s, the structural biology methods were developed to actually 
um, visualize these at the atomic level for the first time. So this is very recent. Super recent. Wow. Yeah. And so this is this is sort of like yeah, I didn't know that. This is sort of like one of these things where like astronomers can go and they can tell you that there's a planet based on the the action of other things. Yes. This is exactly it's the same. similar sort of thing. We knew that they were there. We could understand what they were doing. You would see in the chemistry. You, you would see in the chemistry and the signaling yeah. biology. So certain things will raise cyclic AMP in a cell. Certain things will turn off cyclic AMP in a cell. So you could watch the receptor do its job from all the downstream things that happened, but you couldn't see the receptor. Interesting. So you knew it was there. Yeah. And so in the early, late 1990s, early 2000s, this, this biology and the structural biology really got worked out. And so the, the structures of these were solved, and that they actually there was actually a Nobel Prize for that. Actually, very soon after um, the first structures, because it was a landmark a change in our understanding of biology. Yeah. And so in the lab here, we don't do the structural biology at the atomic level, but we do have cells that we know express these receptors, and we can actually see them because we can. Um, put a fluorescent tag on one of the molecules that we know will bind to it. And so if we do that, we can then go to a microscope and image that, and so we can see where the cells have receptors turns green, or where they don't have them turns red, and, and so we can visualize where the receptors are and whether they're on the cell surface yeah. or whether they're in the interior of the cell. So we can get a lot of information about the cells, the way they signal, the way they are trafficked within the cell, um, by um, microscopy. Yeah. Um, so the Hubble uh, Space Telescope <clears throat> analogy is a good one to think about the, the, techno the advances in technology and microscopy mm -hmm. to get to this, the visualizing these things, no? Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And we can take slices of tissues from um, organs, either from healthy human donors or from um, surgery, you know, if you have your adenoma yeah. surgically removed, you can take very slim, thin slices of these tissue samples and uh, visualize the receptors in on those. And so you can yeah. say, was SST2 expressed here? Was SST5 expressed here? Because yeah, there's, there's so many, uh, at this stage, as you know, qualifications of different uh, adenomas based on the, on the receptors. Yes, yeah. and there's a, there's a keen interest to understand um, the somatostatin receptor family expression profile in these different um, adenomas. So whether they're on the uh, GH-producing cells, whether they're on the ACTH-producing cells, whether they're on the GNRH-producing cells, and are they different, and how might you um, target them um, directly? One of the things I think... Um, that's a big challenge in pituitary biology are the non-functioning pituitary yes, adenomas. Yeah. Uh, those cells, you know, they don't <coughs> produce excess hormone, and so a lot of times you don't know that they're there until they produce some sort of mass effect on the causing hypopituitarism yeah. or the optic yeah. nerve. And talking to the endocrinology experts that you know we rely on this is one of the real unmet needs in endocrinology. And so there's a really keen interest to understand what is the receptor expression profile of these non-functioning pituitary adenomas compared to, to mm -hmm. functioning ones that secrete hormones. And is there a way that we might go after them? Because those are patients who don't really have a lot of options 
once their surgery is completed. And if it's not completely successful, like a lot of pituitary surgeries, they're sort of left holding the bag. And uh, so it's a real area of interest for us is to figure out what might be a good way to target those yeah. patients. Yeah, I know in our publication, we've been we've been publishing uh, some podcasts on the silent pituitary, oh, yeah. non-functional. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, very, very interesting. And I know there's a, a, a quite a, a sizable audience with interest in that because we can see how many hits we get on mm-hmm. this podcast. So, um, so uh, I, when I talk to you know physicians or neuro neuroendocrinologists or um, neurosurgeons that practice in the pituitary, in the pituitary mm-hmm. um, uh, area. One of the things that we talked about is the tremendous advances that there have been in the last 15 years, not only in knowledge, but in number of drugs that are being mm-hmm. developed and surgical techniques and, and instrumentation. What are the things that have influenced uh, drug development in terms of technology? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think we have... Or has there been? Well, it, it, it's interesting because yeah. I... So I grew up... I've been doing this for... 30 years now and there's there's always been every every few years in drug discovery there's been a new wave of this is the new technique that is going to solve drug discovery and when i was a young scientist it was structural biology then it became combinatorial chemistry then it became uh, genomics and proteomics and yeah. metabolomics and now people are looking at uh, gene therapy um, and you know none of these has been the panacea that their advocates have portrayed them as when they break onto the scene yeah but they're exciting new techniques and but they go into the toolbox and so every there's not going to be one technique that's going to solve every drug discovery problem but now there are a lot of techniques that you can assess to try and unravel a problem. And I think that's what makes this era of drug discovery so exciting. Yeah. Um, we, but a lot of these new techniques, they're creating drugs like gene therapy or these uh, oncology, like, you know, things like uh, RNA inhibition. Mm-hmm. And these things are really interesting from a proof of concept standpoint, but they're very, very difficult to deliver to patients. And so conceptually, they might be the drugs 20 and 30 years from now, but patients now need Need something new. new. And I think that's where we've tried, that's where us, we at Kernetics, I think that's always been the problems that we've been trying to solve. That yeah, can you do this or can you do it in a time frame that's yeah. actually going to help? Can, we get, can yeah. we get medicines to patients who need them right now or as quickly as possible? Yeah. And, you know, the goal here is not, you know, the goal here is, like we said earlier, you know, put a bottle in your medicine cabinet that you take once a day that makes your life better. And I yeah. think that's a worthy thing to work yeah, for. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you always wonder whether it's a lot of it, I don't want to call it hot air, but there is a lot of, you know, the excitement that goes into some techniques and immunotherapies. There, or, there's know, a and lot then of all of sudden stem. you go, well, this is 30 years away. Yeah. Wait a minute. And uh, so. It's funny. When we were, we when Kernetics went public last year, of course, we, we did a lot of meetings with financiers and uh, investors and 
one of the things, you know, there was a pretty hot time for the for biotech IPOs. And I remember we had one conversation where, you know, we're scientists, right? So we go in and we talk about, well, these are our ideas, these are our data, this is what we think work, this is what we still don't know. And so we're very logical and methodical yeah. about it. And a couple of times people would talk to us at the end and say, well, you know, the guys who came in here before you, in the first 10 minutes, they said they were gonna change the world five times. And, she, and they said, you know, you guys don't do that. You just tell us what, what you've got. Yeah, because, you know, we're pragmatic. We're, we're very pragmatic. <laughs> we're, not, we're not given to hype or, or um, overstatement, because I think we're all, we're all scientists at heart. Yeah, so yeah. we want to make sure that what we say we can back up with data and, and our, our conclusions are yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's fascinating work what you do. I'm just, just totally impressed as I walk through here and watch everybody working. And you, the fact that you have the labs right here, just a fascinating uh, uh, thing. So what, in terms of the work that you do, what, what are the barriers? What are the challenges that you see, uh, you know, coming? Like, you know, when you go to bed at night, what do you think about? What keeps you up, awake? <laughs> what keeps, what, well, what keeps, you know, it's funny. So we built Credetics for 10 years now yeah. and it's gotten to a, a really exciting place. So yeah. I think the thing that keeps me up is I don't want to screw it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I think from a, a drug discovery standpoint, you know, what we do, you know, the chemistry team makes a molecule and then we in the biology lab, we test it to see if we think it works. But all the assays that we do are designed that to be run repeatedly. They're not on primary tissue. They're in transfected cell lines that are meant to hopefully replicate what happens in the body. And that, the advantage of that is that you actually see it better. Absolutely. You, the, yeah. you, you, you control get the, the Very the reliable responses, very quantifiable mm -hmm. responses. And the assays that we run in November, are we would get the same answer if we ran them three months ago or if a different person run them. So they're very reliable and they're very robust, but they don't. They're, they are removed from the biological system. So the big thing that's the most important part, I think, that we do from a discovery standpoint is we always drive very hard to try and find the connection between what we do in the lab and to make sure that it works in an animal model of the disease uh, so that we have confidence that what we're optimizing for in the lab actually makes a difference in the biological system and here we would always do it and first we would do it in mice and rats the and this is going to sound really weird the good thing about endocrine diseases is that because the endocrinological mechanisms in mammals was set hundreds of millions of years ago that the endocrinology in a mouse and a rat and a dog and a monkey and a person are actually very, very similar. So if we can show that a molecule works at a disease model in a rat, we actually have a pretty good sense that it's going to work in a yeah. person when we get it there. The, the, reaction, the, the reactions are going to be the basic reactions. Are going yeah, to be the basic. endocrine mechanisms in mammals are all pretty, pretty much similar. And so you can really find... If it works at the pituitary of a rat, it's probably going to work at the pituitary of a person. If it works at the pancreas of a rat, it's probably going to work at the pancreas of a human. And so from a drug discovery standpoint, if we can demonstrate that and show that what we're optimizing for in the lab actually makes better 
activity in an animal, we actually feel pretty good about taking it forward in the people. And so the challenge there is establishing that first bridge. And I think once we have that first bridge between the lab and the, and the animal setup, then I feel like we're on really steady ground. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. So um, where do you see Cronetics in five years? That, that's, I know that's a tough question, but or what would you like to see in five years? Maybe that's a better question. You know, I, we, so right, I'll, I'll give you, that's actually, for five years, I think that's a, actually a pretty easy answer um, for me. We have, we have four programs going right now. So we have SST2 agonists for acromegaly and for neuroendocrine that's, tumors. That's CRN008. That's 008. Yeah. We have uh, new programs that are just about to enter the clinic next year, we hope for uh, Cushing's disease. So that's phase two? On the phase clinic? one, these would be one, phase, phase one. one on these the phase okay. one, healthy volunteers um, for Cushing's disease and congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And then another program for a selective SST5 agonist for kids who have congenital hyperinsulinism. We talked to Dr. Cook yesterday about yeah. that. It was very fascinating. It's, it's that's such a need, no? All the, it, all the projects we've started are of course really important to me but I think this is the one that just gets people at an emotional level sure. because you're helping kids who don't have a lot of options yeah. and with a disease that if they don't catch it can kill them. Yeah. And so the need there is just so high. I think everybody's so motivated to help these kids. So in five years, I wanna see 808 approved by the FDA and in patients' hands. I want to see these other programs. On their, is right here. It, right there, <laughs> exactly. It's ready to go, practically. Yeah. I guess that was probably, Jerry probably talked about that. Yeah. Um, but I want to see that approved and in patients. I want to see it um, getting to neuroendocrine tumor patients. And I want to see these other programs either approved or on their way to approval um, for the indications that, that we've, we've been able to, to find for them. And then from a discovery standpoint, we, we, our job is to go back and once we get these programs into <clears throat> human clinical trials, then our discovery team has to figure out, okay, what's next? And so it's this combination of thinking about what are the problems in endocrinology, what, who's not, who doesn't have a, what patient populations don't have good treatments and are there problems there that we think we can solve based on our expertise in endocrinology, receptor biology, medicinal chemistry? Um, can we do something that matters for these patients? And that we examine that from, you know, can we make molecules that we think work? Can we come up with assays that we think work? Um, are there clinical trials that we think would demonstrate the efficacy? And is it something that a small company of now we're 65, 70 people, four or five years from now, we could be twice that, three times that. Um, but I think always it comes down to finding a need in patients that we think that we can help. And so I wanna see all these guys that are in the clinic or getting to the clinic, doing their job, and then the new things that we're just working on right now, yeah. um, making their way yeah, towards. I couldn't think of 
any person that would not be pulling for you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> and, I, and trying to work with you and help on your work because it's such a fantastic. Uh, we're thing. really excited. Yeah. I think, you know, if you'd asked me five years what Kernetics would look like in five years, I mean, five years ago we were probably eight or nine people, yeah. and you know, just trying to get up, still trying to get up, really up and off the ground. So, um, the but progr- I think when we met three or four years ago, yeah. We were still in the squeaky chair. Right? We were still in the squeaky chair. That's right. So, um, you know, I think everyone here, I've been so pleased at the community we've been able to build here at Crenetics. I think everyone here is dedicated to helping patients. Yeah. Um, and we've try to create a good place to work. And so if we can continue to do that for the next five or 10 years, I mean, what a blessing. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm happy to be here. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you.